All right, we are at the 10th commandment. We have been studying the 10 commandments together. Today we're on number 10. Stuart, next week we'll be looking at Jesus Christ and his fulfillment of these commandments. But let's, one last time, let's read these together. We'll read these out loud. You shall have no other gods before me. Seems appropriate that we would be taking up the 10th commandment this morning. It is the first day of the week that ends with the biggest shopping day of the year, right? We all get geared up for Black Friday coming up at the end of this week. Last year, over Thanksgiving and Black Friday, American shoppers spent an estimated $717 billion. National Retail Federation estimates that individual shoppers across the course of that weekend through Cyber Monday, individual shoppers on average spent just over $1,000. What a great time to talk about coveting and contentment, right? That's what we're in, in the 10th community. I'd like to take credit for having timed it out this way, but we're here, right, at, at, at this chosen time. I'm gonna read Exodus 20:17. We just did the short version of it there as we went through it, but it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. We know and we've looked several times at the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 where he talks about um, the adultery and murder and anger and, and, and he makes it clear in Matthew 5 that these 10 commandments are not just addressing outward behaviors but that they are speaking to sinful attitudes in the heart. Not only do we have that in Matthew 5, but we also have the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment is a, a, a discussion of a sin that goes on in the heart. Coveting is a sin of desire. It happens in the heart. Coveting never needs to be spoken or acted on for it to be sin against God. It is violating his law, and that's because coveting is Desire, the, the Hebrew word, root word for covet means something that is viewed as beautiful or desirable or pleasant. And so coveting, according to this commandment in verse 17, is looking with desire at a person who belongs to someone else as by marriage or at another person's possessions or even craving someone else's circumstances, desiring for myself that which clearly belongs to someone else. Now let's get to the heart of, of why this is sin. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, as he is about to teach about prayer, says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, that one of the truths that should guide how we pray is, your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, we might think the logical outflow of that is your father knows what you need before you ask him, so you, you don't need to worry about asking him, but that's not what he says, is it? He says, your father knows what you need. Therefore, pray in this way, and included in that prayer is give us this day our daily bread. And so he's specifically saying you are to ask of God in prayer, but to do so with the confidence that the God who loves you and knows you knows what you need. 
He goes on to reinforce that in Matthew 6 when he talks about that sin that, that so many of us struggle with, anxiety, when he says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about what you will eat or drink or what you will wear. And he's speaking to the very necessities of life, even the very preservation of life. And he's saying, don't be anxious about these things. Why? He says again, because your father already knows what you need. Your father who loves you, who cares for the flowers of the field and the birds of the air, how much more does he care for you? And he knows what you need. That's why coveting is sin against God. Because you understand it's not just between you and me. We, we think of coveting just on the horizontal plane where you have something that I, I want and I desire that. And so it, it's not just that though. It's not just me looking at your car or your circumstances or your house or your vacation or your, your social media and, and seeing all of the things that you have that I wish that I have. It's, it, it's not just that. Ultimately, coveting is me in my heart lodging a complaint against God and saying, God, why don't I have this? Why have you withheld this good thing that this person has? Why have you withheld it from me? At its core, that's why this is sin, because even if the other person never knows what I've coveted, God knows that I have now accused him of shortchanging me in some way, that, that there's something that I'm longing for that you have that God has seen fit not to give me. So, God, why, why are my friends getting married and I'm not? Or God, why don't I have a spouse like that person has? Why, why don't I have a godly husband like she has? Or why don't I have a wife who can decorate and cook meals like she does? Or why haven't you given me a job like he has? Or why haven't you given me more money so I can go on trips? Why can't God, why can't I be the one sitting by the pool with the cool drink in my hand, posting the photo on Instagram, just relaxing, you know? Hashtag blessed. Um, why, why, why is that on them? God, why, why do they seem to have it easy? Why are their circumstances? God, why couldn't I be raised the way that person was and have parents like she had? Why did I have to go through what I experienced? God, why can't why can't I afford the latest gadget or smartwatch like my coworker? And any of these touch a nerve for anyone somewhere along the way, right? What it comes down to is the sin of coveting is me in my heart accusing God of shortchanging me. There's something that I see that I don't have, and apparently you have not given it to me, or you've put me here when I would prefer to be over there. Why can't I have that? James chapter 1, I'm going to spend just a little bit of time in James 1. You can look there. We'll have the scriptures up on the screen too. But in James chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast or stable under trial. Blessed is the person who, who trusts the Lord, who believes God's promises, and who is immovable even in the midst of, of difficult circumstances, who isn't getting blown around by them. Th then James takes the opposite perspective. He flips it and talks about the person who is not steadfast in that moment, the person who is struggling with the temptation to be anxious and discontent and frustrated and angry about circumstances during trials. And to that person, James writes, let no one say when he is tempted, 
I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It's tempting to, to sort of see James sometimes in sort of a proverbial style. Well, stay steadfast under trials. Here's what causes sin, where it's formed. Um, and also God never changes. Sort of three sort of disconnected thoughts, but, but they all flow together. It all comes under that heading in verse 12 of blessed is the one who is steadfast during trials. Trials may be um, overwhelming sense of temptation to sin. It may be a trial brought on by somebody sinning against me. Uh, maybe a trial of a, a sudden sickness, a sudden turn in life circumstances that I, I, I didn't anticipate, any one of the above. Whatever it is, this trial is happening, and it's making life feel hard, and, and it inevitably then leads to that point where I am, I'm starting to covet the circumstances of someone else who's not experiencing that trial. I'm starting to, to look at others and, and wish that I was in their place. We know suffering's inevitable, difficulties, trials, hardships, right? Part and parcel of the Christian life, Scripture tells us that. The question always is, how do we respond? On one hand, there's James 1.12, which says, the steadfast one, the immovable one, the one who believes God, takes him at his word, and, and is not swayed by that, and leans into God's grace and comfort and protection during those times. But the other response is to compare and complain and point blame. It's to start, in the midst of that, to start looking around, comparing even to how it was before this trial, how much better things were, or to complain about our circumstances, to point blame for why we're in those. And, and, and the warning that James is giving here in, in verse 13, when he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted, and he himself tempts no one, is to say when we start to complain and blame shift, we're ultimately pointing the finger of blame at God. It, it, it may be other people that we're comparing to, and circumstances of other people, but at some level, we understand from Scripture that God is sovereign, that Ephesians 1.11 says he works all things after the counsel of his will, and, and our trials don't surprise him, they don't leave him helpless to change things, so that means when we complain, and become bitter in the midst of these things, desire something else that someone else has, desire something better, we're ultimately accusing God, which is why James says, don't blame God. That, that's his point in this passage under the context of trials is now don't, don't be foolish here and act like God is somehow the one to be blamed in all of this. You're not justified by your Seemingly bad circumstances, it's not like you're being treated unfairly. If you're responding to your circumstances with anger and bitterness, what he says here is that's because that's what's welling up in your heart. And that's why he then gives this sort of narrative of how sin comes to bear when he says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And that desire gives birth to sin and sin to death. In those moments when we are tempted to, to doubt God's goodness and to believe that he's withholding something better that we 
particularly can see others seem to be enjoying, that's when God's word calls on us to humbly look within, to look at our own hearts at that moment and say, what, what is it that I'm desiring in this moment? What, what am I coveting? What am I running toward? What, what, is, what am I making to be some kind of escape in all of this that I am pursuing? And that's why James says, no, no, it's, it's each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So what's going on in your heart at that moment that you're coveting, that desire that, that will easily run toward sin if it's not brought into check? Whatever circumstance I'm in, if I'm coveting something you have that I judge to be better, then I am sinning against the God of creation and saying, I, I know you're in control and I don't have this, so ultimately this is your fault, even if we don't say it quite in those words. Which is why then James in verses 16 and 17 says, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's saying, don't, don't be fooled in these circumstances. Don't, don't be deceived in any way. God is the one who supplies what you need. God is the one who intimately knows you because he's made you. Now he's redeemed you. He understands you. He understands what you need in this circumstance. And God is the one who can supply sufficient grace and strength and wisdom for this. He knows what you need before you even know it. And the reason you can know that's true, he finishes up by saying, is because God never changes. We can rest in that because that's the character of God. So when James 1.17 says, with God there is no variation or shadow of change, that, that's good for us understanding who God is, but it's not meant entirely to just build our knowledge of theology. It's meant for us to meditate on that and to realize that when we are in trials, as verse 12 starts the passage, when we're in the midst of those circumstances where we're tempted to look at other things and want them instead, that we need to remember that we belong to a God who doesn't change and who supplies for us according to his riches and his grace, who knows our needs and who provides for us in the midst of them because he does not change. We're, we're being urged here to put off coveting and complaining and to rest in the God who is still good and perfect and just in love and mercy and kindness, regardless of where we are at that moment. The illustration of this is Jesus, 1 Peter chapter 2, when it's talking about Jesus Christ who has committed no sin. There's nothing evil. He's done nothing wrong, and yet he is being mocked and reviled and insulted. Even as he is being taken to the cross to be executed, people are hurling insults at Jesus, and he's never done anything but good to them. He's done nothing wrong, and yet he is being mocked and reviled, and yet 1 Peter 2 says he did not respond in anger, but rather he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. In the midst of that circumstance, he rests in the Father and his confidence in the Father's justice. So he endures slander and mockery and ultimately crucifixion without fighting back because he has entrusted himself to his unchanging Father. Just one last thing just from this James passage, James 1, is just the warning that this comes with about coveting because of what he says in verse 15, the desire to have something that God has not given me then gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Philip Ryken writes, 
That is why God included coveting in the Ten Commandments. Unholy desires quickly turn into deadly desires. Coveting can be just as fatal as any other sin, which should cause us to ask a very practical question, what does my heart desire, and where will that desire lead me in the end? Where are your desires leading you? When you look at your neighbors, or better yet, when you look at your neighbors' social media posts, and you're tempted to covet, where are those desires leading you at that point? What, what is that drawing you toward? What's going on in your heart? What is it that someone else has that you're thinking, I, I should have? And what is that starting to stir? So often, we're, we're like the child who we've all seen, who's, who's playing wonderfully with whatever toy that child has. Life is good. And then he looks over and his sister has a different toy. And all of a sudden, his world is rattled because he wants that toy that she has and she's not giving it up at the moment, right? We've all been through that experience. That, that sudden urge of discontentment. All is good. And then I see this and now it's just a mess and somebody's not being fair to me or kind to me or good to me because I'm stuck with this. And she has that. The, the, one of the, the great illustrations of this and one of the passages I would encourage you to read this week as you're thinking about this is Psalm 73. Familiar psalm. Asaph starts the psalm in some kind of hardship. He doesn't go into detail of what his circumstances are, but it's clear that things are not going well for Asaph. And part of why they're not going well is he's starting to look around. And he's seeing these ungodly people that while he's struggling, they are not. And, and he's complaining about it. They're well fed. They're healthy. They've got stuff. I don't get it. Here I am. And, and, and woe is me, everything's going wrong. And for them, it seems to be going so well. And if you track through Psalm 73, there's, there's a moment for Asaph where by God's grace, God grabs a hold of Asaph and gets him to stop looking at his circumstances and to just dwell on God. And Asaph, in that moment, says, then... Then I entered your sanctuary. Then I entered your presence. Then I began to contemplate who you are. And then he not only was able to experience peace from that, but it was like looking in a mirror because Asaph now sees his sin of coveting. And he says in Psalm 73, when he talks about, Lord, how I came into your sanctuary and I saw this clearly, he then says, I saw I was being brutish and ignorant and like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. That is a remarkable transition. He's saying, I, I'm like, I was like an animal. I, I wanted something, and I was so fixed on it, I was, I was brutish about it. it, it it's, it's like, if, for me, it's my family dog, you know, and I, I want to believe that my family dog, that, that my little dog, he's looking up to me and, and he just loves me dearly and, and he just can't wait to see me. But when it comes to that food bowl, <laughs> that's all he really wants at that moment. It's like, I don't care about you. I just want the bowl. Just put it down. I want the food. And that's what Asaph is using when he says, I was brutish. It's like an animal. I, I just had one thing in mind and I didn't even look at you, God. And when I did, I found this satisfaction that just defeated everything else. 
I realized how good you are. And what started as anxious, angry, coveting, craving new circumstances, new stuff, new friends, whatever it might be, suddenly becomes this deep sense of contentment. And he responds to it by saying, now I see you are with me. You are holding me. You are giving me wisdom. You are walking with me through this. He gets to the point where he's even able to say, you know what? Even if the worst possible thing could happen and this life ends, I will be that much closer to you. I will still be with you. You will take me into your presence. And he sees it all together different. And he ends it by saying, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Seeing God as the the only satisfying one, as the only one that can supply not all the, the stuff that he was comparing to. Asaph wrote Psalm 73 thousand years or so before Jesus Christ. He had the hope of a coming Messiah, but he didn't have all the details. You and me, we, we've got so much more. We, we've got Psalm 73, and we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the rest of the New Testament, and we've, we've got the truth about the Savior Jesus Christ and his gospel. We have that much more to believe and to cling to and to know what it means to be in Christ and to have Christ in us, dwelling in us. How much more satisfied ought we to be? How much more truth do we have when we are tempted to covet in that moment? Our sufficiency is ultimately in our our Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves us and who gave himself in our place. We have the sure truth of Scripture. We've got it in the Psalms. Psalm 84:11 says, The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does he withhold from, from his own. And how do we know that to be true? He reaffirms it for us in Romans 8:32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's already provided his son to stand in our place and to take the punishment that we deserve. That's why in that, that's all in that context of that passage where he says, what can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We have this. We have this hope in Christ. We have, Paul uses the term in Ephesians 3.8 about the privilege that he has to preach, and he uses the term to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. The 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 incomprehensible riches of Christ, the riches of Christ that are so abundant, so deep, that I can't even begin to fully fathom them. The unsearchable riches of Christ. The the, the trouble with coveting is we're looking at people or things or circumstances and thinking, oh, that that is so much better. That is so much more valuable than what I have. That would be such an upgrade. Such an improvement if I just was in that circumstance or, or had that rather than what God has already supplied for me in that moment. And so we allow discontentment to creep in when Scripture says we have riches in Christ, unsearchable riches that are riches beyond our capacity to fully appreciate or grasp. And perhaps that's why Jesus, when he warns against coveting, says this in Luke 12, 15, take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness, 
For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. With that, we're right back to, we're coveting, I think, hits home for all of us on the everyday basis, right? Where Jesus says, you're not satisfied with what I've provided for you? And you want this abundance of possessions? Be careful. And then he tells a parable, and you know the parable. He tells the parable of the rich man. The guy who's whose year on the farm has gone incredibly well. And he has got crops everywhere and life couldn't be better. And he's looking at all of his stuff. And this rich man says, what do I do? I've got almost too much stuff. My barns aren't big enough. There's an opportunity right there to, to give some stuff away, to, to use some stuff in the worship of the Lord as offerings. And yet, what does he do? He says, I, I think I'm going I'm to build more barns. I'll build bigger, better barns. I'll tear down the small barns, and I'll build bigger, better ones so I can, I can keep my stuff, so I can put my stuff inside and, and keep it all. And with that, he says, I can congratulate myself. The, the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 12 is the guy is kicking back, and he's got it all, and he's going to relax and eat and drink and say, look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've built. You remember how the story goes? That very night, God confronts him, and what does he call him? Fool. You fool. This very night, your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's a brutal indictment. This guy was preoccupied with possessions, bigger, better, laying up treasures for himself, not realizing that he was about to die and stand before his creator as a steward accountable for all that God had blessed him with. And instead he was trying to take credit for it all and completely missed the unsearchable riches that Jesus came to give. Listen, let me, let me just be real clear, especially as we're approaching this week. God has not called us to live like monks on some mountain, in some monastery, not possess anything. He's not calling you to a vow of poverty. But what he's addressing in us is this constant sense of churning discontentment that says, if I just had this, if I just had something bigger, better. And, and Jesus is not, Jesus' answer to this is not to simply say, stop coveting. Because God has made us as creatures to desire and to have longings. He's made us as human beings to have that capacity, and he's done it for the good reason that we would long for him, that we would desire him and the unsearchable riches of Christ. God has made us to be longing, seeking creatures so that he would say, don't be anxious about these things. God provides what you need. You seek First, long for, desire, covet, if you will, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. You take those desires and direct them toward the one place where there is sweet satisfaction, where there is lasting satisfaction. Our merciful Savior is not simply saying don't covet, but he is giving us himself so that we who are joined to Christ and in Christ can pursue the, the one thing that is more satisfying than all else, and that is our Savior Jesus Christ, the one who loves us, who has 
raised us with him that we would fix our, our greatest hope and our deepest longings on him, not only for now, but for all of eternity. In, in Christ, we have eternal, abundant life. We have peace that passes all comprehension. We have joy for far beyond our worst moments. We have, we have his comfort and his presence with us in whatever we walk through so that when those moments come and, and we look up and we see someone with better stuff or better circumstances or better this or that, whatever it is, so that in that moment we are able to stop and with the Apostle Paul, who's sitting in prison, wrote this, we're able to say, I've learned in whatever situation I'm in, I've learned to be content. Whether I have much or I have nothing, whether I have plenty abounding or I am hungry, abundance or need, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he says in Philippians 4. A number of you have, over the last year or more, been praying for, for Robin and I that one of, the, one of the things that we have desired is to move closer. We live about 30 minutes away over Manassas, and, and we have been trying and trying to get our house ready, and it, it just one thing after another. And God, in his grace, over the course of the last month or so, has just, in our minds, just sort of moved mountains. And tomorrow, God willing, we are closing on the sale of the house in Manassas. And next week, we're closing on buying a house here in Lorton. And, and for those of you wondering, I'll tell you the date if you want to know it for moving day. But that's, a separate, <laughs> that's, that's the self-centered plug right there. Slid that one in, huh? But Thursday, we had... Those of you who have bought and sold houses, you know this. There's all sorts of little moments along the way. Is this going to inspect? Is this going to appraise? Is this going to go well? And, and, and Thursday was one of those moments where the realtor says, we still haven't gotten this taken care of yet. They haven't, the buyer hasn't done this. And, and I am in the midst of this sermon. I am plugging away at this sermon when I get the email that's like, ah, nah, that contingency hasn't been lifted yet, so it's okay. It'll, it'll happen. I'm sure it'll happen. And what's the first place my mind goes to? No, it won't. This is, this is all going to go away. I mean, this is, this is going to collapse. They're not going to buy our house. We won't be able to buy that house. It's just, and there we go. There come the, the desires because now I'm looking going, God, why? why? Why are we in this circumstance at this moment? This, this, is, this was cruising and all of a sudden it, it hits this moment and there goes the heart right out the window fleeing after the imagination. And the desire gives birth to sin, to say, ah, oh, this is just all a mess. And I am doing anything in that moment but serving my wife. And, and instead of saying, honey, the unsearchable riches of Christ are ours. We'll be fine. And I'm not doing that in that moment. I'm doing anything but. God, in his kindness on Friday afternoon, the realtor said, it's a go. Take care. Praise God. Yeah, I, that's pretty cool. But so, so moving day is December 7th. Um, <laughs> since you're clapping, I thought I'd just seize that moment. But all of that to say, we, we go after these fleeting desires. We get caught in circumstances, and we know the unsearchable riches of Christ. And we know what Asaph said. He's, he's with me. He's holding my hand. He's right here with me. And our hearts get anxious, and they start to desire something else and to covet peace that we would define at that moment, when in fact we're called to find our greatest contentment in Christ. 
and to believe that this good God who gave his son to save us is also the same good God who is walking with us and who is with us and who is not leaving us or forsaking us and we can trust him. Let's pray together. Father, you know our hearts. You know the, the draw of coveting. Father, we could all, no doubt, confess before you moments this week when for one reason or another we have, we have thought something should have been better, different, nicer, newer. Lord, forgive us for for having a discontentment with where you have placed us and what you have provided for us. Forgive us for when we look past the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ and strive to find contentment in things or stuff. Father, I thank you for your sweet provision, for knowing, knowing us who we are, frail, finite creatures, who need repeated reminders that you are there and you are with us and you are walking with us and providing for us. Thank you for doing that again through James and through Asaph and through these men of God who walked through these same peaks and valleys and repeatedly found you faithful, as have we. Father, help us this week to, to long for Christ when our, when our senses are overloaded by the, the inserts in the, the newspaper and the emails with the, the deals, Lord, when our senses are loaded by things that we think we need, that we definitely want, cause us in those moments to be reminded again of what remarkable riches we have in Christ, how you have blessed us, provided for us, what it is that we possess as believers. And Father, if there's anyone listening who is not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, that is, that is the greatest need of their soul. And, and I would just pray this morning that you would make yourself profoundly real to any who are not trusting in Christ. Cause them to see that their, their greatest need, the thing that separates them from you, is our sin. All of us are sinners. All of us are rebels. And it is only by acknowledging our sin and trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that there is forgiveness, that there is newness of life. Father, would you do that work this day that we might celebrate and give you glory for it. And may you find in your people as we set out this week, the people who are leaning into you for more grace, for sufficient strength to as we look around to, to keep being reminded of how grateful we ought to be for what you have provided, how thankful we are for what we have in Christ, in whose name we pray.